You only get into out the game what you put into it, Shelley. Mm -hmm. And I put everything into it I could and still do for the people and for the people that I was playing for and the people that I was manager for. I didn't cheat them out of anything. So I put all my heart and soul to the extent that my family suffered. Do you regret that at all? Oh, yeah, I regret, oh, I regret it very much. Yeah. Somebody said the football is a matter of life and death to you. I said, listen, it's more important than that. Hello and welcome to Man Marking, Series 2, Episode 4. Let's see who we've got on the show today. Yeah, no no problem at all. So, um, my name is Dan Parnell. I live on the Woodchurch Estate on the Wirral and I work as a senior lecturer in sport business for the University of Liverpool. So joining me today, as usual, is Ryan and Ant. Lads, how are we? Yeah, I'm really good, thanks mate. How are you? Yeah, I'm not so bad. I'm not so bad. You know, taking over, taking over. How about yourself, Ant? Yeah, not bad. Um, a little bit tired, but I'm okay. Good stuff, mate. Good stuff. Before we get into to Dr. Dan Parnell, we've got a little intro question this week. Obviously, we've seen the Bundesliga commentators on the return of the Bundesliga. They're commentating from their own homes, which has been a little bit strange to see. But what I want to know from you two is, and starting with you, Ant, what is your favourite piece of commentary ever? Oh, see, favourite piece of commentary ever? No. I'm trying to stick go away from Tramia because I feel like I talk about Tramia quite a bit. Um, I think the one that sticks out in my mind, maybe one of my favourite goals ever as well, um, is Beckham's against Greece uh, in the World Cup qualifiers. Everybody, part of the Greek support is playing for a goal. Beckham to take. The 93rd minute at Old Trafford. It's a fantastic ending to a very, very poor performance. And he is a lucky manager and he deserves the goal because Beckham has virtually played Greece on his own. What a turn! I think Moxon sums it up pretty well. And I think when you it's been on a couple of adverts recently and it's always got the wrong commentary on it. And it's it's so annoying. Um just because you know what the original sounds like, so I think I'd go with that one. Ryan, what about you? Yeah, similar to Ant, um, a non-Trammy related one. I think it was one a few years back, uh, Roma against Barcelona, the Peter Jury commentary. I think he said, Roma have risen from the ruins. Manolis, the Greek god in Rome, the unthinkable unfolds before our eyes. This was not meant to happen. This could not happen. This is happening. But he did it in his good voice, not my horrible northern voice. But it was just class. I think Peter Jury's had a few last few years in the um, Champions League. So that one sticks out for me. And Yeah, do you know what I thought? I thought one of you might go for that. So, yeah, I'm glad that that. Was Any there. impressions from you there, Dan? The Greek god in Rome. 
<laughs> so, Dr. Dan Parnell, Ryan, I think it was you who set this, this interview up. Do you want to give us a little idea as to, to why we wanted to speak to him? Yeah, so I initially heard of Dan on Radio City with Matt Jones. He was talking about um, like football finance, and I genuinely found him really interesting. So I followed him on Twitter and, and told him that, and we started to engage a little bit. And it comes back to those conversations we've had with people like Miguel Delaney and Luke Moore about social media and muting people who damage your enjoyment to social media, but also following those that will enhance it. And I think Dan has a really forensic and unique way of looking at the game and how it's placed in our personal life, community and society. And he's made me think about football in different ways, uh, which is one of the reasons I wanted to get him on. And I think with having a football opinion, it's often who shouts the loudest or who makes the most outlandish comment. But with Dan, you can see there's like a genuine thought process. And I think these are the voices we need to hear more of in football. And he genuinely didn't disappoint throughout the interview and sort of exceeded the expectation of why we wanted him on, really. Yeah, absolutely. I think he touches on some really interesting points. Um, and we always have a theme. Do you want to tell the listeners what this episode's theme is, mate? Yeah, if you want to peek behind the curtain, you've written it down for me as well. Um, the changing landscape of sport, football as a medicine, football as a business, and its place in our community. Uh, the one thing that I picked up on from this interview was, because I wasn't there, uh, it was Dan's love and sense of football and sport uh, being a part of the community and how helpful it can be. Uh, it's something that we hear quite a lot. Um, and I think sometimes it can be a bit of a throwaway comment, more like a tick box exercise. Um, but when it's right and when it's been done properly, it doesn't half make a difference um, to local areas and, and areas that can can suffer um, without without help from, from wider, wider sources. Um, and also, it was interesting to, to listen to him still have a passion for the game of football. You know, often when you look at things quite forensically and you're quite analytical, that passion kind of goes because you kind of uncover the the bad things and the, and the disappointing things about football. But it sounds like he, he really loves the sport and it sounds like it's given him some of the, the best days of his life and it's starting to um, help, his, help his children as well into into navigating this world. Absolutely. We'll see you on the other side. So this is Dan's interview. Journalists, and we haven't had anybody else on like yourself at the moment. And looking through your CV, you've done an awful lot within the game. Can you sort of just tell us how that came about? Was it something you always wanted to do, get into sport? And, and what is it you you come with, like, teach on your curriculum at yeah, University of Liverpool at the moment? Yeah, yeah, no problem at all. I think when I, um, I went to... I went to Tarfield Primary, then Woodchurch High School. Um, I was into football, so the natural thing is that we wanted to study football or sport, and we didn't really at the time. Um, the kind of route way for us, and we're very fortunate to have that, was to you know to go to university. So John John Moore's University had a, a sport and exercise science degree in the football focus. So kind of just went stumbled into that. Didn't even go didn't go to an open day. Didn't check anything about it. Just like right, I'll go to uni, be a P teacher. Um then once I got that out of the way to, well towards the end of it, um I had an opportunity to work at Everton and uh, to do a to do a PhD. So that job spec was written um or could have been written for me with all my experience at that time. So I just, just gambled and went for it because I thought, right, you're gonna get one chance to to be be part of the club that you love. 
and end up spending like six years there. Um, long during that time, worked at different unis, um, and then for the past six years, um, I've been mentored by the University of Liverpool and really well supported to 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 come and join them. Um, to have our close connections there for you know it's over a decade work of worth of support and uh, preparation to for for me to come home. So although I went through John Moore's, um, for me coming back to the University of Liverpool is like the icing on the cake. Um, and it's an in- incredible, incredible place. So now me 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 current role there, but we've got an incredible program of football industries MBA that's been going for over twenty years. It's got alumni working in every aspect of of the football and sporting industry. We've got a relatively new um, masters in sport business management that's been running for a few years and we have we have over 80 students from all around the world and it's just an incredible um incredible exciting group to work with um, and then around that i teach a, a bit of exec head on the league managers association and then i'm involved in in different courses as and when um that's kind of it. I suppose, although you are still only in your thirties, football's changed so much, probably from when you went to university to to now, and the fact it is becoming more and more of a business year on year. So, I suppose from that sense, it's becoming even more relevant as well. Yeah, yeah, completely. I guess football, even when we look back historically, it's always been about money. It's always been, a, and people have had to have money. There's always been inequalities. Um, you only need to look this. You know, it's a dramatized, but the recent Netflix uh, documentary, I think it's the English Game or something like that. Um, you can see it's about business. It's about people playing uh, for the working classes, and it's about people who've got um, uh, elite and superior wealth. That have helped see through the the, the the early parts of the game. I know it's a dramatized version. I think now what we've seen from you know me coming through, we've seen massive changes for the way for the fan experience, massive changes in the in the backroom of the football clubs in terms of not just backroom staff from a performance side, which has changed massively, but also from the commercial and business side. So when we were on the game, um, you know, and Ryan, I'm assuming you're a similar age to me. Um, is that you know, internet was just kicking around. Uh, mobile phones were just coming as we we're going through high school. So yeah. this idea of clubs having websites and uh, customer relation management and all this type of marketing madness we have now was was nowhere on the nowhere on the horizon. So clubs yeah. have changed massively. The the still financial economic beasts, um, and they they will remain to do so. Um, but like we see now in this 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 current period that we're going through, things are going to change significantly now and and in the future now within football clubs, no doubt, because of this massive jolt of the system um, because of the coronavirus. Yeah, and I suppose cash flow now for a lot of the lower league clubs is is huge. I mean, me and Danny are both uh, trying to season ticket holders, so we know that in terms of our chairman, we might not be very cash cash rich but we've got um, someone with very good business acumen there and um, he was talking about it the other day Mark Palios just talking about how a lot of clubs now are just hand to mouth and um, I think we're going to see a massive ripple effect off the back of this aren't we and while the Premier League don't rely on ticket sales anymore could probably live without them even we're seeing some of the bigger clubs put like staff on furlough who are probably earning sort of not much more of a minimum wage on a monthly basis so it's crazy sort of times that we're living in, really, isn't it? 
Yeah, completely. So I'm I'm quite close to Tranmere too. So uh, from going from to the soccer schools as a kid, and then um, myself um, and a number of the other dads at Chaffs take a lot of our young lads who are in the under twelve teams there over to be ball boys. So I get to I watch more of Tranmere than what I do of Everton certainly this year. So it's it's interesting to see that you say that because there's a there's a there's an interesting misconception. So there's a lot of fans that are really engaged and really switched on around the importance of how their club is governed and how it is run um, financially and the things that it does within the community. And I think I think with Tranmere, you know, it's been just a quite an exciting case study because they've done loads of things right on and off the pitch, um, whereas other clubs haven't. I think fi- financially, even if a club is really well run, um, given what's happened recently, I don't think even the best runs clubs will be surviving much longer because they're up, they're really up against it. So even if you manage really well in League One and manage your finances really well, how 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 much finance finances can you really have in the bank to survive with no money coming in? Um, mm. it's, a, it's a really difficult period. I think as you look further up the leagues and you mentioned about some of the other stuff that's going on, I think between unknown times and people are trying to get it right and people are getting it wrong. And some people are getting it spot on. Um, there will always be an appetite for people to to want more. I guess. I guess my thing is we have a, have this idea that you know players, football players are generally overpaid. Um, but f- but for me, they you know that side you know this has just been a job to the system. Um, it's not really them, the workers, who should take the hit for this. Um, there will be arguments for. Um, trying to level that down and bring wages down that I completely understand in, in the prem, in the Premier League and top divisions. Um however I'm I'm a big advocate of, of workers' rights. So I'd be looking towards some of our some of our owners around how they can invest some of their money. So if you look at if you look at like clubs that have got hundred years of history and an owner's been involved for the past twenty years at best, ten years, um, five years or whatever then I actually think they've got a bigger role as a custodian around making sure the club is secure and sustainable through this, through this period. Um, and I must admit as well, I think the, the added sort of strain as well on owners now, and I've seen it with Tramio a little bit, to use them as an example as well, is fa- you, you've got to factor in the fans' expectations. So you take Tramio, for example, probably have one of the smallest budgets in League One today. And the second you're not doing well, it's a case of they haven't invested enough or uh, all these excuses come up that they got the playing sort of budget wrong and we should not be doing all these other um, sort of community things we should be putting into the player budget. And that tends to go away when you win a few games. But the difficulty is when you face a crisis or you face uncertain times, it's going to be those community incentives, those sort of hospitality incentives where you've brought in extra money that's going going to keep the club essentially surviving so it's it's quite a bit of catch-22 i imagine for for some owners who, who are careful um you look at the Aquitan stanley manager andy holt who's quite sort of prominent on twitter and there's a few other well-run clubs out there but it's just a, it's spinning points really isn't it between being competitive uh, and also trying to keep the club moving at a pace that it can sustain yeah i think i think as a fan <coughs> You want the best out of your club, and you you earn a right to be to be critical, and that's that's my personal opinion. Is that every fan earns that right to be critical of their club, 
um, because a club is, is as much as some owners will think differently. It's not just a business. It's something that we've invested in with our our grandparents and their parents and our parents and our, our kids and all that kind of stuff. So it's our, you know, they've got cultural um, significance to us and tradition. So I think we're, we we reserve that right to be critical. And I think one of the one of the one of the problems with clubs that even clubs that are well run is just the, the level of communication and transparency around what is going on. Um, and that that the arguments owners and, and chief execs would probably level back if fans is, you know, they won't understand it. There's too much of things that can't be shared. And I totally understand I totally get that perspective. But then there's things the fan, fans probably need to know. So um one criticism like I know Chelsea fans would be have over recruitment, so there'd be a question mark mark over there is question mark over that is who's overseeing recruitment? What does it look like? What are the constraints? What is Mickey being tasked with? How much has he got? You know, some of these yeah. kind of things. And fans would be a bit more understanding and probably got off off his back a lot more. Um and the club's back if they knew what this looked like. But again, again, some of these I, I get that these are also private businesses. Um so that so whilst I would say they're not on paper, they are. So people want to treat that that detail and confidence uh, for commercial reasons as well. So we will always have those tensions between what fans want to know and how much they should know against um, how much clubs put out. Do you think there's a huge issue in football now whereby these lads are getting eye-watering fees before they've even done anything? And the come down of that is if you don't make it, then you're left with a lifestyle and a sort of a lack of fulfilment from from what you thought was going to be that never comes. I think uh, I think without doubt, football players, young players, need more support. I think what we've seen certainly in the past ten years is a significant improvement um, across academies and different aspects of football. And if you if you go into an academy. There's an abundance of absolutely amazing people working there that if you ask them what the role is, it's about creating better people. Mm. And they are there supporting them in so many ways within within the remit of also producing high-quality uh, football players. There will always be that tension and challenges of, of, of creating an environment that is, one, challenging enough to produce an elite uh, player that can get through the system. And creating someone who is a, you know, a quality person as well. I yeah. think we'll always have that difficulties. The type of money that we're, we're talking about, um, and when people are getting a, a, couple, a couple of grand a week, and sometimes, um, ten or fifteen grand a week, and they're nowhere near first team football and the different in different aspects of the club, and some players are a, a lot more than that. It is then it becomes there is a little bit of madness to it, a little bit of madness to it, um, and you do question how. How useful that is for one the player um and also the situation however i do think there's been a lot of support gone into into players but you still see um in media reports and different stories that obviously it, the players are just like us too they'll make mistakes um, yeah they will they will they will do things that are unfavorable and the, the difficulty that we have with football is that we we position these people as role models when actually the these lads didn't set out to be role models. They set out to play football. And when they joined the academy, they didn't join to become, I'd like to be a role model for 
millions of other people they, they go there because they want to they want to play footy and they love it and then it's a career and then everything else falls into place but like every 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 industry you get every walk of life in there so i think you're, you're dealing with like a law firm or a university or a leisure center you've got every different type of of, of people that work there um with their own issues their own challenges so i think we won't ever eradicate the need for support for players i think it's just about chipping away and doing better and challenging ourselves to do better year upon year i think there should be maybe more of an education system in place alongside the playing when they're coming through the academies well education and welfare has improved massively over, over the past over the past decade <laughs> within, within academies um what we found there was Obviously, there's that tension as, as players get close to um, under 23s and first team environments where they've got to make tougher decisions. Some players are like you, you, you know, those superhumans that can do a bit of everything and still maintain their education and, and, and carry on with that that route way. Um, and some it might not it might not be appropriate for them. I'm involved in a a course at the minute that has just gone through validation at a different university. Um, that is is going to um offer the opportunity so it's going to work directly with clubs to offer um young players and existing players the opportunity to do different forms of education in the university setup um and i'm aware of plenty of players and support of plenty of players that have been able to play but also do their education as well um but edu my type of education in university education is not going to be for everyone either mm. i guess giving people that sound uh, personal and lifestyle advice to set themselves up there's a few players that stand out to the people that are setting themselves up as in different businesses and investing wisely and doing all kinds of activities. Uh, but to maybe get back to your point is that I don't think it's I don't think it is an age thing. I think at different ages, and in the academic literature we talk about this as transition. So you transition from let's say youth to youth to first team, and then trans transition out of the first team maybe through injury or through age or into a different different career into a coaching career these transitions every time you get some kind of transition there's there's opportunities these big change moments there's opportunities for things to go off the rails that that happens just as much as and maybe more of players coming out of the game um, um, just to talk a little bit more about the football collective um so what sort of topics are you debating there and how did that start and who's involved so that so i mentioned a little bit before but we had a, a group of us that met and we met around first we met for it was a bit actually a little bit sad we met him and did a workshop for each other on social network analysis which is really sad sounds really geeky <laughs> but to, to lad that up a little bit we did go out on the aisle all day um, <laughs> and had a, had a cracking day out and when we were sitting there we said we actually said you know we could all invited more people that would have benefited from today um so why don't we why don't we do that so i was I was a little bit cheeky and I said, right, let's put it online, let's give it a name. Um, we recorded the football collective, put it online. And then the first conference that we had later that year, just meant to be a one day catch up, turned into like a hundred plus people in um, FC United. From there, we went to Limerick, we went to Hamden, um, we recently went to Sheffield and we were due to go to Portsmouth this year, but we've, we've been postponed this year's conference. And the idea of the collective is, um, we had only got a bank account recently. There's, there's no, there's no money enough, nothing like that, um, which people find it difficult to believe. We, we've never once got like a, a proper main sponsor. 
Uh, we've never tried to make profit out of anything. We don't intend to. It's you join the collective and it, it operates by whatever the members put in. So it's not um, to me as chair. It's not all the work that I do necessarily. It's it's everyone else. So it's all the things that go unnoticed. It's if you join, it's you commit to then saying if someone gets in touch, I'll be there. I'll respond. I'll I'll help them as best I can. Um, and it's just that, that idea of being collegiate and being supportive for each other, which doesn't exi ex exist in most places. On a more yeah. on a more soft point, if you go to an academic conference, it's, it can be quite um, it can be quite arsy. People can be a little bit uptight, um, and we try to knock that down. So we so our stuff is about high quality research, really reasonable costs. So we're not we're not hurting anyone financially, um, and no one's making a profit out of anything. And we also do it in a in a really good manner. And we've got really good characters there to, to, to police and manage that. So when people um, are a little bit out of line, they've got some good people in there that can just pull them a little bit. So we've got about 300, 400 members now uh, from all around the world. And it's just an incredible group. I'm very, very proud just to be, be part of it. Um, going from strength to strength at the minute. Just lastly, without going through your whole CV, Dan, um, mm -hmm. you do a bit of work as well with the Association of Sporting Directors. Uh, and... I've, I've, I know a little bit about sort of sporting directors because I, I used to know a, a couple of guys at VSI. I'm not sure if you know, you know the guys there. Yeah. Uh, Darren Royal and uh, Terry Falconer, I think it was, who I met a few times. Um, yeah. So if you could just talk us through sort of what the ASD do and, and what your involvement is. I guess, I guess I wanted to be the type of academic that, um, that didn't just teach sporting directors. I wanted to fully understand it from a grassroots scout through to the, the owner of football club. So I spent the past three or four years just and longer just out interviewing chief execs, agents, owners, football managers, heads of coaching, academy managers, grassroots scouts to get a full picture of how the industry operates. So I would join that time. Um fortunate to meet a chap called Mike Rigg. Um, um Mike set up the the Association of Sporting Directors uh, off the back of completing um one of the FA level five technical directors courses that it was a new pilot on completing the course that they were again they'd spent a year or more working together on this course and then they were like okay what do we do now how do we stay in touch how do we stay connected and support each other so that that spared the idea for the the association of sporting directors i've been involved with, with mike and colleagues there for about 18 months and then in october the opportunity came up um, to take and i was put forward for the role as chief exec so I've um so the sporting directors um association as a whole kind of caters for people that are in leadership positions within football. So we see sporting directors, technical directors, um heads of academies, um directors of football, all these types of roles are kind of captured within that. Um and presently we're working with about 120 people across the game in um in the UK and in Europe. Um, we've also got strong links with the MLS. Um, my remittance I've got in is just to get a few more good people around the table and, and tighten up some of the governance, uh, trying to support ourselves financially. Um, and um, the main priority has been building those relationships up and support for, for sporting directors. So, so not offering any, any education support per se, so not a, a certificate or a degree or anything like that uh, by listening to them on a on a weekly monthly basis what is the issues 
and then putting things in place to try and attend to those issues. Um, and we're getting a little bit better at it. Um, and that's what, that's what we've been doing. So that group wow. is a, a group of senior football leaders and we, we listen and we respond and we try to help them. Um, and at the minute, it's quite a, an ex- exciting time for the association. Personally, have you ever had any mental health issues of your own, Dan? Yeah, you know what? I've never really, never really thought about it, but I guess in the, in the spirit of, of of sharing it, when I I was um I was a member of staff at, at John Moore's University and um, on a bit of a short term contract. Now at the time, I, I, I took a job in Scotland, and when I took it, it was in um, it was in Dundee, and the the idea was you know you go you have that security of a, a permanent contract, which is very very lucky to uh to even get considered for um but that that break away from being with the family so being being up at monday morning nine o'clock in dundee driving up like early hours of sunday night and then coming back late friday and only getting bit the time with the kids and then still trying to play football for the the shafts and the have our local teams um at different periods it, it, you know it, it just that kind of broke me completely just being away from uh, my wife and being away from the kids that was probably the, the biggest time and then and i guess since then the biggest mental health issues i've probably probably felt is like it is whenever it's not that not directly necessarily my own it's when i've seen it through close friends or people i've come across and i find you know it's really i think when you learn people's stories they really struggle and carry a bit of a burden trying to help people um and i just think it's become more prevalent within society um you know where you know where they would church estate and for people that listen that don't it's it's got a couple of big it's got a big motorway that goes alongside it and a couple of big bridges that unfortunately a couple of people have committed suicide off mm. um and i think that that plays on my mind a lot because i think you know we've had austerity for 10 years people have got less money and whatever people says about money it, it helps it, it helps and inequalities and poverty is real um, and i think it's I think it's a contributing factor in driving people over the edge in different respects. So, so yeah, it's. I just think it's a a bit of a burden locally as well when we've got stuff like that going on. Do you have any thoughts or, or insight into why men don't feel that like comfortable asking for help or admitting when they're struggling generally? Um, if I'm honest, that I feel like I, I've grew up with some of like the like some of the the, the best best lads and best friends from from the different football teams that I played with and and the and the, the groups of, of mates that I've met through it and friends I've met through it. Um during that time as you can imagine there's been so there's some really hard, tough lads been involved in those those different teams. Um some nasty lads as well and some absolutely like absolutely spot on lads within those teams too. I don't think there's ever been an occasion though where people haven't been able to to open up and talk about it, and I don't know whether that comes from the from the the, the football teams that we've been involved in. Um, I don't know whether it's come from the managers that we've had, but we've always we've always had that that um, knowledge that if there was a if there was a problem, we can talk about it, and it doesn't matter how bad things get, we'll always be there. So it doesn't matter how many times you might end up on one of your mates' couches as a as a young lad. Or how many times they end up on, on your couch? You know, we know we know bad things happen. We know tough things happen, but we'll always be there for us, and it will never be, um, it will never be that bad. Then that you can't turn around. I guess like some of the softer stuff that now as we're getting on a little bit is, 
if someone has commenters on the WhatsApp group for a couple mm-hmm. of days, there's a few like side channel messages going on to say, look, can someone go and see if think he's all right? Or can someone give someone to a message they've been quiet? Um, I guess we're quite, I think, I guess we're quite um, aware of looking after each other in our, in our little group. Um, but yeah, I, I do feel like I've, I've come, I've had a, a unique, maybe, maybe I haven't, maybe, it's, maybe people are listening and go, no, Dan, I've got that too. But I think <laughs> in that we've, we've had some like, tough nasty lads who were fighters and scrappers um but i've always been able to say look you know i've got this going on i need to speak about it or we'd just come out with it and we'd just deal with it um so yeah i, I feel like whether that's a unique experience or whether that's what everyone's, everyone's experienced but we've never hesitated that when we've had to talk we've, we've got it out so yeah i think um i think share, sharing like that and open up like that would have opened the gateway for a lot of people to come and discuss i guess there's, there's two there's two things that, that probably stand out in, in my memory like one in my memory and one of, of why i think football is so important so so i've sp- i've spent i've tried to my whole like football philosophy as a coach is all about like you know build friendships build friendships because it will all look after itself everything else and i, I think that's a massive part of you know your, your football team really and and, and People forget about this. Parents forget about this. Some coaches forget about this. Is is you want to support network for when your 13, 14 year old kid goes off the rails and actually they, they don't. They've got a good. They've got a good support network around them. They've got friends around them that care for them. And I I got that through football. I think. And um, so I always endorse football because it's not for everyone, but it's been a bit one. But it's been a bit like a church and a bit like a community for me. So that, that's a, why I'm a big advocate for it. Why I wanted my lad involved in it. Why I wanted them to have some top mates through football is because of that reason. I think it's massive as they get to the teenage years because it will see them through a lot of dramas and a lot of tough times. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, Dan. Couldn't agree more, mate. Yeah, thanks. I think the, the other one that I had is I did a lot of research with where I'd interview men um, and during my interviews with these these men, uh, the, these men would often, often lead so I can say this, but we have we have published this work. There'd often be a like, number of health issues. There'd often be experiencing different aspects, um, different issues related to, to poverty. And I'd be wanting to talk to them about physical activity and health. However, as soon as I would sit down and we'd, we'd obviously have a rapport with these fellas, as soon as I would say, how has your week been? And genuinely listen, because that's what happens in an interview, you genuinely listen. It would be pretty quickly that, they would break down or they'd be talking about problems with uh, the partner or, or the wife or problems with the boss and work, things that they would get really emotional about, real worries, real concerns. And I was a young lad, I wasn't necessarily prepared for all that, and I did the best I can to, to, to comfort you know, 40, 50-year-old fellas to say, you know, look, you know, um, we kind of just empathise with it and talk through it as much as possible. But I, you know, it's really crazy because I was going to ask them about how much activity they're doing, how much exercise, <laughs> how much they love playing footy. Um, and it wasn't. We were talking about money. We were talking about partners. We were talking about work. Um, all stuff that I probably, probably, and probably still am relatively inexperienced at. Um, so these these fellas would would break break down. They would open up on all kinds of stuff. And what it is is because they haven't they haven't had anyone that week or probably that month that have said, "How have you been? How are you doing?" and and genuinely meant it. So I think that when I have that with with some of our lads and maybe like what you're talking about, we we sometimes jump through it quickly. We say, "How are you doing?" 
and then it's like blah 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 this and the other and then bang straight onto something else um but actually it's like and then maybe it's a bit of that campaign getting into my head recently as well but it's asking it's asking twice and sitting and listening properly listening and trying to respond to what they're saying um that kind of stuff is when you start to get into deep conversations and people start to share what's going on because they know you want to listen um so there's, there's two other things there is like when you do ask people what's going on and you genuinely mean it you usually get a proper proper answer but you've got to you've got to mean it and then the other thing is that i think football can be a cracking place a cracking environment and cracking community to put support networks in for people and young people coming through who, who experience problems and i saw on your um on your linkedin page that you 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 uh reshare the post by a guy called um marcos who's a uh, wrote an article for the FMPA magazine yeah. um, where he was talking about how football, you know, as a sport and as a social phenomenon could be right. an ally for, for public health strategy. Do you think football as an industry does enough to, to, to harness that and, and use it to tackle mental and, and physical health issues? Yeah, so 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 Marcus Oscostino is um, a friend and colleague Um top fella and we wrote, we wrote that article the article was based around the concept that football is a medicine um so to answer your question can, does football do enough i think i think football does an awful lot and does a lot that it's it's able to do um when it comes to to tackling big public health issues the last thing i want to be turning around to is relying on on my local premier league club to be delivering my public health because some of those clubs have challenges have challenges uh, in managing themselves never mind managing public health for my area so i make the comparison with, with denmark and denmark have got a true welfare state where they they look after people um they have good good social welfare strategies and they invest and in, from a sport perspective they make a massive investment uh, per person uh, and their gdp into sport and leisure facilities and they treat it as if it's part of their public health strategy to make sure people have access to the sports facilities and pitches whereas in our country we've got 10 years of austerity 10 years of austerity and, and cuts to public services that impact our football pitches on the back of maybe 40 years of neglect of our football pitches um, and we can't turn around and expect the football foundation um, to carpet the whole of the UK in Asher turf grass because it's not sustainable, it's not healthy, it's not doable, it's, it's not, not going to meet the demand of what 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 we need. Um, so we need to turn around and we need to look at you know you know we need to look at football and sport as as part of um, as part of an answer, but it needs serious money and it needs serious backing and serious government policy. And without that. Without that, football and sport will always pay a lip service towards public health because we don't truly value it. Value it. If we truly valued it, we'd invest more money in it. Uh, the critique in me is that you know we haven't got big sports bodies pumping money into into government to say you know we should be investing this into into sport as a treatment or football as a treatment for med for diseases. But what we will have is lots of pharmaceutical companies. They were really supportive of government policies and agendas um so you know while people are unwell it's good it's good for business so at the minute sport and football has so much potential and i think they're doing incredible stuff but they will want them doing more without proper policy and regulation probably not 
probably not. It's, it's interesting you, you say that because it kind of segues onto the, the next question, which I was going to ask, which was around sort of corporate social responsibility in, in sports. Um, I think just to start on, do you, could you just give us a bit of a, an overview of what corporate social responsibility is? Yeah, okay. Um, so, so CSR, corporate social responsibility, would be a company's responsibility to its to its broader stakeholders um, beyond. So you probably, there's a chap probably about 30, 40 years ago grouped it. So you said, said the first company's responsibility would be to um, be profitable. Then it would be to, to be legal. Then it would be to, um, I forget now, to look after its staff. And then there was discretionary responsibilities. Um, I forget, so, someone else will correct me on Twitter, probably it's, it's, Carol's, <laughs> it's Carol's Pyramid for CSR. Um, for, for me, really, it's about business looking after its broader stakeholders. Um, and that's any organisation, I guess. Uh, so for the football club, it's not just your your, your playing staff, backroom staff. Um, it's all the people that are associated with the club, whether it's on a, a, a sessional casual contract, um, through to all the local businesses that rely on the football club, through to the fans and the fan groups. So suppose building on that then, how much responsibility do you think the football club football clubs have towards their community? So this is it. So how much responsibilities they should they should have all of their you know not all of their a great deal of their responsibility towards a community so but we're in a globalized football world so really you should look after your community because they're the fans that are going to walk up and pay to get through the, the door so if your fans are in jobs if they're healthy um if they're looking after each other good lifestyles you got you got fans forever if you're part of that, helping your fans then you're gonna have that closer connection and, and loyalty with your fans beyond just being that, that football team. Um, the difference is now we're in a globalised world, so football clubs don't don't need to look after their local community all the time now, because sometimes they've got lots of fans from all over Europe wanting to come and um, be supporters. So we've, we've got a bit of attention there. For me, though, if we, if we talk about to the core, the, you know, as we see now with, with football not happening, um, it's, we're going to get close. We're going to see clubs start to start to do everything they can to rekindle the love that the club has within the community, because it will be the community that helps them survive through the, through this tough this, this tough time. Um, for me, we for me, clubs are doing an awful lot, um, but I've got big question marks. We've got football clubs that run schools. We've got football clubs that are working in prisons. We've got football clubs that are working in schools um, and at the minute i think a lot of it um is work that should be done by the government or with better government regulation policy and support and at the minute it's all a little bit ad hoc um and it doesn't it, do, it doesn't make me feel comfortable uh, because the people that make these decisions that, that are head of the charities and are working on the boards of football clubs uh, they don't make great football decisions all the time, and they haven't necessarily got a public health background. So big question marks whether they should be doing some of this public health work, and whether they should be delivering schools and the rest of it. We give a lot of responsibility to clubs. It's a little bit like um, what we do in England. If a coach is willing to give up the time and volunteer 
we just say, oh, yes, 100%, please go and coach our kids. When actually we should be the opposite. We should say, hang on, we want the best the best coaches ever to coach our kids. We don't just want someone who's willing to give up the time. That's not good enough. We want someone who's extremely well qualified, extremely well experienced, and is well intended. Um, in, in England, I think we've got this idea that people are, are, are willing to do it, whether it's a bit of volunteer, volunteering or a bit of philanthropy, as people fall over themselves to accept it. Actually, we should be a little bit stricter about who we let do things and we, we scale that up to football clubs. We should be a little bit stricter about what they, what they do and what they're allowed to do. But in this current economic climate, we can't because communities are crying out for services and support and they have to turn to football clubs, which is which is unfortunate. I suppose I suppose one, one interesting thing about that would be, as you say, with the, the, the current economic climate that we're in it, it, and... and you know, particularly in the in the in the region that we live in, we've seen massive examples, as you say, of public services being caught and and of austerity. And I suppose one thing that it has thrived through austerity has been football and football clubs, particularly at the the top level. Do you think then? Do you wonder it then if 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 because um because governments and because local authorities know that. The football clubs have got the finance. They're happy to just turn a blind eye to things and allow them to just get on with it because they know that they've got the money they can deal with it because we've got other things that we need our budget for. Yeah, so I think my take on that is that local authorities, um, particularly women in the northwest, um, number northern areas, have been so cash strapped. Um, and I've had the funding depleted so much through through austerity, is that they don't even think about sport in any great detail. So they won't care too much about the fact that um, we've taken away um, Johnny, who's been looking after the pitches down in Birkenhead Park for the past 20 years, and he's been replaced by someone on minimum wage who uses his, his tractor to cut, um, to cut across a roundabout on minimum wage and then cut across a football pitch in super quick time just to get get it done and get off because he's under his own demands. Um, so I don't think local authorities think about sport in any any great detail because their attention quite right, rightly has to be on on bigger issues to do with with public public health and housing and stuff like that. So they the sport won't really appear on a, on their ad- agenda genuinely. Um, but they might use sport at times because sport makes the headlines and can get them into different bits of news and media. But really, it's not for me. It's not massively on the agenda. If it was, it would be it'd be in the policy doc- documents, and they'd try and protect money for it. But they can't because what you what what's more important? Taking taking recycling home and making sure we've got good public health systems, um, and and proper housing, which we don't do properly anyway. Um, or people playing football not the minute. Playing football is not going to get close to it. We touched before on how um, football obviously is more and more becoming a more global corporate organisation. Uh, you know, it's it's moving away maybe from that sort of those original community aspects. Do you think that's that's unhealthy and potentially dangerous for the for the future of the game? I don't know. I, I'm just thinking back as you said that about this 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 whole conversation. I feel like I've been incredibly negative for the whole of it. I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't mean to be. Um, maybe just because it's getting a little bit late and I'm feeling a little bit down. The fact that we've been in isolation. Um, 
but you know, fo- football as a globalized game, um, it is fascinating, and it's it's grown to be more global, um, in many in many respects. Is it a bad bad thing for the game? Um, I don't know, I don't know, but it certainly what it does do it changes who owns and who governs sport, and we've seen that within. Uh, the Premier League, for example, for the the different uh, different characters and the different owners that are involved in running our elite level football in this country, and the power that the Premier League has it as its at its disposal, um, it would be foolish for people to really think that a foreign investor wants to say buy Everton Football Club or Manchester City Football Club or Liverpool Football Club because they want to improve the local community around that club it would be crazy it'd be like us making all our money on the Wirral and saying right i'd like to buy a baseball team in oklahoma and develop like a local district in oklahoma we would never do that we would never do that it'd be madness people would say why on earth are you doing that um so if we think that these these people are buying our football clubs because they want to regenerate greater manchester or they want to regenerate uh, the north part of, of Liverpool City or the waterfront uh, or regenerate around Anfield. We are kidding ourselves. Uh, these are business people coming in to make and should be making, I'm not talking about everything, they should be making shrewd investments um, and to to make money out of, out of the clubs and I guess uh, make money and also gain other benefits from being involved with, with an elite brand. Um, and I think we get wrapped up with the idea that these people are coming in to invest in our community and look after things. And I don't think we're critical enough about what goes on with those investments. You know, I have conversations with people who are Premier League football fans and say, oh, I'd love to see Tramia get up to the Premier League. And I think, I think I'd hate it. I quite like it where we are, to be honest with you. It's, you know, we can buy tickets. It's quite cheap. We can always get in. We can sit with our mates. We can go all over the country, you know, and, and after the match, yeah. if you go into the... You know, into the bar or into the, the tent or whatever, the players come in and speak to you. You know, you can get quite close to it all. And, and I just think at the top level, it's so taken away from what it once was and the reason people fell in love with the game that it almost, as you say, feels like a false economy. It feels like eventually the reason that people are investing so much in it in terms of people will pay all their money to go all over the country to follow it, it will become something that's different. And I mean, people probably won't want to do that. Um, so it's, I'm often always torn about it because I do love watching the footy on the telly, but I'd hate to be one of those clubs. I think it's, I mean, I say I agree, but Everton have been in the top division as far as I've known. Um, and I'm not saying that just to rub it in because I know you've got to <laughs> give us a spanking too. Um, it's, I I mean, when I had my season ticket for the last three years, I've had my season ticket, I, I just give, I was giving it for free to my friends each week. Um, before, before I said like that, that's it. I'm gonna have to have to spew it. And I've been on the wait list for a few years, but I'm fortunate enough to to um, beg Boris Steele purchase a ticket um, for different parts of the ground. Um, and this year, sat in lots of different places. And only only go now. I wouldn't go personally on my own and turn down tickets on my own. I'd only go and take my lad with me. But we did sit in one of the fan bits, which is in the the lower lower Gladys Street in the in the left hand corner behind the behind the goal. And there, I had that feel. Everyone stood up for the whole whole of the game, sung songs, even when really we shouldn't have been singing songs. We just shut up and let them take the silence of players. 
Um, but no one, no one had teeth to be there. People were just questioning. Um, and it was it was a good vibe. I think the things that you talk about at Tranmere about being with friends and that kind of relaxed environment and like I absolutely love that bit of Tranmere. I love the fact that the lads are there. I love the fact that I can go to Tranmere. I can walk in on my own knowing that like the few kids that I've taken are going to be in with in with the ball and getting looked after by Spencer and the ball boys. Um, but I, I'll go and there'll be like at least five or six people that I'll see just before I start to get myself a burger or anything like that it's just full of people that we know and I, I i loved that part of everton but we'd all go as friends and we'd all be there as friends and family uh, i love and miss that a lot um but i get a lot of that from going to Chamia and sitting with friends and but now all my close friends a lot a lot of them are going to Chamia, taking their lads too so it's a really good really good atmosphere and, and i love it but yeah you would lose so much of that if you went if you went up into the premier league you'd lose yeah some of it. You'd also see, and it would be hard not to. You'd also see a bookies emerge somewhere because mm-hmm. I know there's no bookies in there now, but it would soon start to creep in when 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 finances and pressures become uh, intensified. So, so yeah, a lot of the things that you love love about Tranmere would would be lost as you go further up. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And and one of the things at the moment, obviously, that the the pandemic at the minute has seen the the government's offering financial schemes to assist sort of businesses so that they don't the economy itself doesn't collapse and it's it's come out obviously in the in the sort of recent days has been in the news about premier league clubs accessing the funds in and laying off staff as as ryan said before i think given that the, the sort of latest premier league deals worth about nine billion pounds i think it seems quite unseemly to a lot of people it's it, you know people find it quite uncomfortable have you got any sort of thoughts on 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 on, on that yeah so I think my, my, my general comment on this, and it, it is a, a general rather than detailed comment, is that we've set up a, a situation where we've allowed um, different people to own Premier League clubs and football clubs and run them however they wish almost without strict governance for the past 20 years, 30 years. Um, what we can't expect now in a time of crisis is is, is these people to be um, the best people in society. And that's what we're hoping for. We're hoping these business people are the best people in society, in society and are only there to protect the club. Um, what we're seeing is, is that is not the case. And that is not a surprise to a lot of people. Um, so in this, in this regard, you know, if... If people are going for government support and government support is available to them, then I have no problem with them doing that at all, at all. Um, but what we need to do as a as a football collective, as a as a group of people that have got a stake in the game, um, as fans um, and different stakeholders, is is remember what what has gone on. How do we learn from it, and what can we do to improve things, to protect things in the future? So at the minute we we haven't got no no rights to be to be changing too many things within the ownership of clubs and the actions that they take because they they're private businesses. What we can yeah. Do, sorry, yeah. Sorry, right. All I'd say is what we can can do is is we can say what happened, what do what what worked well, what didn't work well, what things are we unhappy with. Now my guess is that we aren't gonna we aren't gonna complain at the end of this. I. I wish and I hope that there's going to be significant change to put 
people and staff working within clubs from players through to backroom staff in a better position in the future. Um, but again, I don't know what it's going to look like. Um, but but for me, I've got no no problems with clubs access and government support. That's how that's how the system is set up, and the government have, have profited handsomely over the years from the from the global exposure the Premier League's provided. Do, do you think there's there's do you think there is any any um, responsibility of, of of the players to to act in this situation? We've seen it abroad in 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 Germany and in Spain and, and and Italy as well, where players are taking pay cuts to to pay sort of um, match day staff to make sure that they're not you know losing houses and what have you. Do you think there is a responsibility on the players to do anything, or are you kind of of the opinion that it's a systematic problem and that it, it should be incumbent on them to solve? It, it it certainly shouldn't be on the players' responsibility at all, at all. Um, there's different levels of integrity and morals that people would expect. However, though, they're only expecting this now, so I have, a, I have a problem with that. If someone thinks it's okay for a chief exec to earn um, a few million a year and to be paid a few million bonus per year, and then it's, all, it's also okay for members of staff to be only be paid minimum wage, then I've just got an issue with you generally, not you in particular, right, Dan, <laughs> uh, but you generally for thinking that's okay. But now, because things have got a little bit tasty, and we're experiencing this global pandemic, that now we think these uh, multi-million pound bonuses and wages are unacceptable, then that just means that you've not, you're not critical. That just means that you've got no idea of what's going on in the game. And if you think now's the time to just be critical of it, then what have you been doing for the past five years? Have you just been clapping every time they've put um, a new stadium in or they've put some extra lights on a new music show or they've got good fireworks and, you know, or they've got some nice slogan painted around the ground. Is that what you, the type of fan that's just been clapping that while someone's getting paid a multi-million pound bonus? And then you deserve everything you get because that is almost, you know, it's that lack of awareness by fans that one want to be critical now when actually the critique should have started years ago. If it does work out for the benefit of of, of, of broad the broader football environment and the people that are more critical and are more switched on and are more challenging of the decisions of owners within clubs then great um at present though my eyes would be firmly my eyes and scrutiny should be on the ownership and, and of football clubs rather than focusing on the, on the players um and i think the staff that are caught in between that are in a, a, a terrible situation at the minute we've got not enough powerful people will with the will for things to change to create more sustainable clubs at the minute um i think i think my general points are just a, around how our clubs are, are protected and, and and workers are protected uh players and as well as people who are who were cleaning the stadium through to people that are looking after the, the grass and the ground people you know they should all be protected they should all be protected the same all be and treated and treated the same now there'll be different morals and ethics where we'd expect play, some players to give money towards it and take cuts, but that's not where that's not the focus of my attention. My attention would be how do we protect things in the future and we protect things via ownership and via via boards. So I'll be interested to see. I mean, I, by no means do I think I'm, I'm right with this. This is just my um, analysis and understanding of what I think is going on and what I think would make the biggest possible impact um moving forward um but yeah football we've got we've got work to do to make it more sustainable um 
And in the end, you know, you you, you talk, you you've said it yourselves. You know, why are you going there? You you're going there to socialise, to watch football, to travel, to experience, to have that camaraderie with your friends, to have that competition with other clubs. That does it. Does it have to be in the Premier League? Not necessarily so. Does it have to be in front of multi-million pound players? Not necessarily so. We're just that's what we've been fed, and at the minute we're we're eating it up. But there'll be other there'll be other versions of football that that we would love, and we can consume just as much as we consume in this um, hyper commercialized multi multi billion dollar game, multi million dollar game that we're watching at the minute. If you look at um, there's a few examples with GAA uh, over in Ireland and uh, the way they set up and the way you you know you 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 aspire just to represent your local area and there's something and they, they look after their own pitches they have their own fundings and it, it's not perfect but it's a, it's a real you know the whole thing it's not about being paid it's about representation it's about identity it's about culture history to do tradition and you don't have to have multi-million pound contracts to achieve all those things um and i'm fascinated by by how we can replicate some of that and do something different in, in grassroots and community football. Um, but yeah, let, let, let's see what happens with elite football and, and what these, you know, I don't think anyone can predict what's going to happen at the minute because we're in such an, an uncertain time. Welcome back. Still got Ryan and Ant in the in the studio. I want to say studio, virtual studio with me. Really interesting thoughts from, from Dr. Dan Parnell there. One of the big things he touched on was almost football club's relationship with its community. And I think as people who support their own local football club and have always been very engaged with it, right, I think we feel that very much so. Yeah, it's it's amazing how powerful that can be because, as Dan touched on, he's a massive Everton fan. His family are, his son will up an Everton fan, he's a season ticket holder. But even he commented, commented on, sorry, um, about the feel-good factor when he goes to Tramia, where he can just walk in sort of near kickoff, see a load of people he knows, people there with their kids. Um, and it's just got that lovely community feel about it. Um, and it's it's the same with us, but we probably take it, obviously, a little bit more seriously, whereby we always sit together. And I'd never really thought of that until you mentioned it to, to Dan on the interview. A lot of people do go to games with the friends in Premier League grounds, and that's not what we're saying, but we could literally have around 10 people at Tramia, and we often do, um, where I can't imagine you can just sort of rock up and that happen at a Premier League game. Um, equally, we've got friends who, well, Mark Joyce, who's been on the show, who would come home from America, but only at Christmas time, but he'd still join us for the match, but if he was maybe an Everton or Liverpool fan, he'd be trying to get a single ticket or trying to get a ticket with someone he knows. So it's it's a balancing act, I think, for football clubs to be successful against having the sort of community spirit that you may lose as as you go up the league. So it's difficult really, but it is certainly something that can be attractive about supporting your local club. Yeah, I think at the moment you've got this situation where, you know, we're on a in a a tragic backdrop of of people losing their lives due to a virus and, and people wanting to start sports again and it's very very messy and it's very very tricky to navigate um but i think when you listen to, to that interview uh, from dan you you've got to understand that sport matters and and how ever silly it seems that someone kicking a, a bag of wind around the park matters to to, to people in a community 
it does and I think that's that needs to be appreciated more I think it's always something that's um particularly I think in this country that that we don't really appreciate the sports that we have we, we love them we're, we're passionate uh, and you know we we follow teams up and down the country in in any sport and uh, bowls indoor bowls gets you know hundreds of people on a tally like um so it's not that we're, we're not passionate about them I just don't think it it holds a stronger place in a in a, a more wider society of, of importance but as you look at uh like america and the nfl they that's massive to them you know you've got uh, take for instance green bay um you know the stadium holds eighty thousand people the town holds about a hundred thousand people but that town will empty to go there there's a 40 year season ticket wait kids are put on that waiting list when they're born um it has a massive impact on, on the whole uh town um just from what it is and the importance of that is is huge and it's placed as as one of the most important things there um i think just from at the in this current situation i think it'll be hard for football uh, to move forward um there's talk of you know football is eating itself but i think football is trying to fight against against uh people calling it not important which I, I can't really agree with. I think it is important and I think we do need and sport in general I think we don't need it back put it back when it's safe and, and possible to do so but it, it will have to come back because people need that even at an amateur level people need that you know you look at Dan Parnell putting his kids in football teams and it creates friendships and I think that's what people need you know that's how we all know each other um, that's how a lot of people I know know each other uh, from various sport teams and and it opens you up and it, it gets you talking. Um, and the effect it has on your mental health, you know, we've spoken about it before with, with Aaron Connolly and, and time to tackle, um, playing a bit of football and then talking about stuff that's, you know, pretty serious and, and real. Um, it's a lot easier after doing that exercise. So I think when when people think of exercise, it's often, oh, I need to go for a run, but it's not. It, it's disguised exercise sports, isn't it? It's, it's, it makes you feel good. And you don't realise that you've run 5k or, or or anything like that. So that's how important I feel about sport in general in a community. And it, it helps, you know, you look at where Tram is situated, that Borough Road area, there's shops there because Tram is there. And and if Trammy wasn't there, I can't honestly say half of them would be there either. Yeah, absolutely. I must admit, I don't think I've run 5K of football for a very long time. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I think one of the big things that I took from, from what, what Dan was talking about was almost that idea of what is a football club, like what is the point of it existing? And I think it's come to head recently in, in sort of national media around Newcastle and their sort of the owners and the, and the, and the, and the Saudis taking over and that sort of thing. And we heard Dan talk about how owners uh, almost become custodians of football clubs. And whilst football clubs are in essence a business and they're there to be profitable and to support people's jobs, they were originally started to be almost community hubs and community centres. And whilst it may feel like a fanciful thing in 2020 to still feel them that way, I personally, and we've spoken about it a number of times, the way that we sort of look at Tranmere would less so be about them being successful, but more about them providing an outlet for us and a place for us to socialise and a meaning to, to go out on a Saturday 
that it's not so much about whether they get that three points and it's more about as you say seeing each other enjoying it feeling close to something feeling connected to something and feeling as though this thing and what it stands for cares about its community and we can only really speak for Tranmere on that essence because they do care about the community massively. We'll have a, an interview with with Mark and Nicola Palios coming up in the next in the next few months that we that we recorded the other week. And a lot of the community schemes that Tranmere that Tranmere run have obviously been put on hold for the time being, and that's having a massive impact. I would imagine on a lot of people's mental and physical health. Um, one of the other things that I thought was really interesting that Dan Pitt talked about, and you kind of touched on it there, Ant, um, was about amateur sport and about the importance grassroots football can have and we've seen all over the country the impact that austerity and and cuts have had to amateur sport and to grassroots football particularly i mean just from a personal point of view the three of us in in some guys or another have ran football teams together over the last sort of five years or so and just if your regular pitch is booked up or your regular pitch is unavailable it becomes really difficult to find somewhere else to play and the impact that that then has on public health are massive. And I know you, Ryan, particularly are big on the sort of connection between your physical and your mental health. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think you need to be a professional or semi-professional um, sort of footballer or sportsman to a sportswoman to get the benefit of, of playing football or any other sport, physical activity. It's massive. Um and I think it's providing as many opportunities for that to be possible across all levels, um, whether that's women playing the game, um, disability sports, it's about making it in inclusive for everybody to have the opportunity. One thing Dan touched on is the relationship between sort of public health and football and not putting that emphasis on sports clubs to take on public health. But there is also a natural byproduct of support and mental health with sport. And what I mean by that is if there's a leisure centre every two miles, meaning every community can access it and it's cheap and it's well run and the people who run it are well qualified, then you have an infrastructure there that lends itself to a healthier community. And the byproduct of that is then obviously you're not going to eradicate all physical and mental ill health, but you will aid it massively. And um I think that's a very important point. And he also touched on that we've got this almost attitude in the UK whereby it's anybody who will volunteer. So take yourselves, for example, you both coached a local club called Heswell, which is a, a well-run football club, has a team, I think, in the Northwest Counties, and then Saturday afternoon, Sunday, junior leagues. And I, I imagine you'd maybe did a DBS check before you got the job because of how they're set up. But again, it was sort of probably opportunity came about because somebody just needed to fill it and he he touched on Scandinavia and, and how they how seriously they take the sport and you know we have to look at Iceland who have qualified for the last few I think uh, World Cup and Euros a country of I think less than half a million people I think they have at least um, the equivalent of FA level two coaches in every sport and hope they have there because they have a lot of indoor leagues because the weather gets bad now, probably a little bit easier for a country of that size to to provide that to everybody. But the point still stands that you need that infrastructure in place. And the infrastructure here, whether it's because of austerity or because of negligence, it just seems to be waning away. And the facilities we expect are young sort of, not just footballs, but the young sort of generation, the next generation of adults to play on. It's just shocking. And it... 
it's just almost caught in this trap of club blames council, council blames FA, FA say they're putting in money to grassroots, and you're just like a virtuous circle that never gets solved. Um, so I, I do have a lot of sympathy for for people who don't don't ha- almost have the resource to to play sport, and not because they don't want to, just the opportunity just isn't there for them. For you, Ant, as someone who's got a, a, a small child and he's probably in the next few years going to be at that age when he might be able to start playing football. Dan talked about how he's encouraged his own lads to get into football, to maybe bring those networks in and bring those friendship groups in that, that he's found so beneficial. I presume as someone who's who's played a lot of different sports, that's something that, that you'd be looking into as well. Uh, yeah, definitely. I, I think if you ignored that, I think you'd take it away an option of of uh, well, them or anyone making friends really um it can also you know teach you a lot of things you know you you basically widening your horizons on on being able to access other people's knowledge and how to do things and also you, you're gonna enjoy something um at the end of the day we play sports to enjoy it and to release stress and and, and that's why it's so good so absolutely i think yeah it would be i don't know whether i want to go and get them into crickets and stand in a, in a field in Scoundsdale uh, too often <laughs> but for eight hours a, a day but um, yeah no definitely I, th- I think it's something that needs to be encouraged more and more um, grassroots football is completely different I found in my experience compared to uh, say cricket or rugby um, often you don't get with grassroots football, you don't get a clubhouse, you don't get any any specific holding station really for where that team plays and what that team is and what that team's about. So I think that's where it's kind of difficult. Um, I often have a have an idea of maybe if you if you regionalised within the within say for instance the world, you could have various different sections and you could start to have places like a home pitch for someone, a changing rooms and, and go from there. But whether that's doable or, or or not is a different matter. But I think that's why it's difficult at grassroots football is because there's no attachment. Um, it's often, you know, you turn up in your kit you don't, you, and then you go home. You, you're only there for 90 minutes on a Sunday. Um, whilst that's good and, you, and you're getting out and you, you're seeing people, I think that's where it slightly falls away. Um, whereas with cricket, you you ingrained in the club of rugby you've got a clubhouse as well and um i think that's why people become more attached to those sports not that they're, they're growing in any great number but that's why i think people play them uh, a lot older and a lot longer maybe i must say Ant, if you send your lads to cricket i will be sending social services around to your house <laughs> completely unacceptable behavior so, one thing that dan did say in his interview which which is something i know that that we all have, have spoken about in the past was footballers acting as role models. And I know you and I have spoken about this before and as somebody who's, who's a parent and as somebody who looks upon the game and has sons for the, since a young age, I often wonder if that's a little bit unfair to put that on, on young footballers. Uh, yeah, on young footballers, yeah, definitely. Um, I think there's a way to, obviously you want them to act and behave and and stuff like that, but it can be quite tough. I think when so when you look at I don't know, this is going to sound really bad, but when you look at Roy Keane, for instance, you know how many people want 
want their kid to, to grow up like Roy Keane. Probably not a lot. But it doesn't mean that Roy Keane's a bad person. It doesn't mean he's a bad player because he won pretty much everything. So it's kind of finding that balance. And I think you're going to have to give way to a couple of different things. I think it's a big topic at the moment where can you be, basically, can you be a nice person and win things? And I think you can. I don't think it's necessary at times. Um, as a role model, look, I mean, you look at the, the most recent one I can think of, Luis Suarez, bit, bit two players, um, you know, got banned for, for racial remarks, but there's kids that still love him. Um, what you need to do within that is educate those people and, 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 and anyone who follows them around those issues and, and, and show them that, hang on, that's kind of not what's needed. Um, but don't discourage them from watching them. Don't cancel them. I think that's what we can't do. I, I don't think we can cancel these people um, and, and, and say, no, they're not role models. You need to follow someone else because, you know, for you look at Eric Cantona. Eric Cantona went and kicked someone in the crowd and he's still loved and revered by by all of United and, and well, he's probably not liked by Leeds, but um, <laughs> he's it's it's a really tough one. At the end of the day, you've got to find some of your own judgments as well. Um, use the best sources around you and and try and figure out what you think, not what anyone else thinks, what you think on it. And I think if you do that more and more often, not just with people in sports, but people in in society and, 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 and politics, you'll be able to at least know that you've done the right thing as well. You're doing the right things and you're making your own judgments. You're not being led by anything tribalistic, which I think creates a better conversation as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think in certain ways that sports people can be really good role models for a lot of reasons. You know, I think particularly you look at how driven they are and how focused they can be and achieving what a lot of people don't achieve. I think there are certain aspects of that that really need to be revered. I suppose Absolutely. where I, I, I would draw the line would be, you know, yeah. almost dictating to sports people that they have to behave like role models because I just think that creates a pressure to almost be perfect, which, as we know, is just completely unrealistic. Absolutely, and they're in pressurised jobs anyway, aren't they? So, yeah. you know, they're in the public eye and they've got to be... They've got to win... I don't really buy into this, you know, it's about they're taking part and stuff. When they're paid to do that job, they've got to win and they've got to get results. And they're going Can to try I just say that. on that as well, they haven't asked to be role models. They yeah. haven't put themselves in a position that's, that society holds a stick to. They've, they've spent their whole life being sportsmen and that's exactly what they are. Now, the popularity lends itself to good behaviour because you're watched by so many. But that's a pressure that we as a society has decided to put on them, not one they've decided to put on themselves. And we're living in a world at the moment where it's very relevant to talk about this at the moment, where politicians aren't even seen to do the right thing. So why do we have an expectation, an inflated expectation, that footballers should be these amazing people? And what I would say is we only have a snapshot into 5% of what a footballer does, which is that 90 minutes on a Saturday or maybe something they've done that's got to social media or got to the press because they're always chasing them. But reality is they could be a brilliant person for 95% of the time. Take Do things for charities, do things for the family, have be parents themselves, and then all of a sudden 
in a high-pressured, high-emotional state within 90 minutes of their week, we see them do one bad thing and all of a sudden we're, we're able to judge them. And I just think that's a very, very odd way to look at society and look at human beings. And I mean, if we all get stressed in our job. Imagine somebody came to you at your most stressed at half four on a Thursday when you, you got loads of emails in your inbox and then they judged you on how you acted for the next hour and a half. You'd be thinking, hold on a minute, you don't see me behind closed doors when I'm a good parent, a good father, a good partner, whatever it may be. So I just think that we need to sort of take a step back and have a sense of reality here and, and, and how we judge others. Um, because at the end of the day, they are entertainers. They're not they're not taking a job on that, that is there to in, improve society directly. Uh, it's almost like indirectly. So I just think... I do feel almost sorry for this bubble that they've got themselves in now where anyone can say anything to them and have a pop at them and they must act like the perfect human being all of the time. Yeah, it's mad. When Ryan's put that that work analogy in there, it's crazy. These sports and industries, even like the the, uh, the, the acting industry as well, they're like no others. They're absolutely like no others. So I don't think anyone's going to get to the bottom of it right now. But it might evolve a little bit differently and a little bit for the better. People might go, oh, do you know what? Hang on. He's trying to win a game. They're trying to get the best performance out of themselves in a in a multi-million dollar film. You know, these people have, have got a lot of pressure on them. Do we really need to look up to everyone as a, as a role model? No, but we can use our own judgments to decide who we do and who we don't. You know, there's, for instance, Tyson Fiori, you know, before his comeback, which is an amazing comeback um, from pretty much rock bottom, um, you know, there was people who, who, who didn't like him, who don't see him as a role model. But now there are people who see him as a role model because he's gone through that experience and he's come out the other side and he's shown people that you can do it. But choose which one you want. Like, don't go, oh, now he's a role model. He's only a role model because he, he's, <laughs> he's fundamentally never always been a role model it's it's a really difficult one and it's a really to be honest it's a really good topic to to get your teeth stuck into as well last yeah. thing for me on that sorry dan just really quickly because it's one thing i loathe is that the social media and the journalist point of view is that they can't wait for somebody to slip up and that's what really annoys me it's like you 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 revel in like say jack Grealish through the week i think he he breached laws and he went out or Kyle Walker and it's like they've made a mistake and, and they should come out and apologise and own up and, and there might be repercussions within their job like a, they might get fined and the club can deal with that but then it's this almost headline society we live in where that's they can't wait for somebody to do something wrong so they can say oh this football's done this isn't it terrible and you kind of like well, this football was, might have been in the limelight from when he's 18 to 35 and as as Anne touched on with Tyson Fury, he might not be a role model at 23, 24, 25, but he might be an amazing role model at the time he's 32. So let's not pick on everything good they do and everything bad they do, and let's let people live their lives and, and we decide what exposure we have and who and who we want to be our role models because, quite frankly, if you're looking at football desperate for a role model, then you probably need to have some self-awareness and and, and take a break from it and, and look at other aspects of life where you can you can take positivity or you can find a role model because there's plenty of good people out there. So you don't really need to put football on a pedestal to, to take that 
role model from and there's other places in society that's probably healthier where you're not as emotionally attached to find the people that you you can sort of take strength from so thanks for being with us again this week as usual you can find us on the twitter at mark underscore man and use the hashtag ways to talking lads our next episode is on thursday with former man united former barnsley rotherham striker daniel nardiello and before we leave you with Dr. Dan Parnell's quick fire questions. As usual, if you have enjoyed the episode, then get onto Apple, Apple Podcasts, get onto Spotify, whatever platform that you use, give it a review, give it a subscribe, and share it with your friends and your family and, and anyone you think will enjoy it. So this is Dr. Dan Parnell's quick fire, and we'll see you again on Thursday. Thanks for listening. Um, if you could have any job in football, what job would it be? Owner of a football club. Uh, best match you've ever seen live? I'm going to change my answer now anyway. I'm going to say Everton's win against Wimbledon when we stayed up. Um, okay. And we had um, James Stewart score that wonder goal. <laughs> score the wonder goal on a pitch, in, pitch invaded for the first time. With my best mate. <laughs> and good, good, good so, yeah. uh, if you could have seen any match live that you weren't at, Dan, what would it be? Um, Barcelona's comeback in it was about two years ago I think they came back into PSG oh yeah oh yeah yeah I watched, I watched it with my lad uh, I've actually secured one ticket for the game but I wouldn't go because I couldn't take my lad with me um, so <laughs> so we sat and watched it with my mates on the estate but it was like yeah one of the best games I've ever seen oh no way yes don't game man best performance you've ever seen from a player live Daniel Amakachi um, playing against Tottenham at Ellen Road in the semi-final of the FA Cup, and he, he came on and scored two goals. And one of them, was, one of them, a little tapping, but then he ran past us. I was front row, and he bouncing his head up and down. Um, that was one of the best performances I've ever seen. I loved it. And when we were all screaming, "Amo, Amo, Amo!" <laughs> by fire, loved it. Loved his performance. Um, Favorite football film. I don't think I've got one. I don't think I've got a favourite football. It would probably be the favourite DVD I liked, I liked watching. And I still watch it online with George now is when we signed Super Kev Campbell. And he, we signed him on on a short-term contract and he kept us kept us up in the in the Premier League. And we gave him like a five-year contract and he didn't do anything else afterwards. It was <laughs> absolutely crazy. I think he scored like nine, nine or ten goals in nine games. And I was sitting at the, I sat through every single game at the, at the front of the Gladys Street. Uh, as a teenage lad with me with my best mates and it was absolutely incredible we thought he could walk on water Limpar they've got four against four Graham Stewart's had to check he would have run off the pitch inside of his Barry Horn here number 10 Stewart's available now that's his cross Amagachi In go the tackles and the interceptions and the passes and the release ball to Anders Limpar. Now he's got somebody sprinting up to his left. I think it's Gary Ablett there. And Amakachi is square and unmarked. Amakachi surely it's.